We live in a very lossy world. Life is fragile. Fortunes change suddenly. My son had his 38th birthday this past Monday and celebrated by taking his car to the mechanics for an expected $700 repair on his brakes, which morphed into about $1,100 once he actually got looking at the calipers. Bushfires and plane crashes are extreme events, but remind us how quickly all we have can suddenly be taken away. So our reflex can be to become guarded, holding tightly onto what seems like the little we have. And Jesus challenges us to see that what lasts is not material stuff, but the character of our soul. How we treat what this world calls treasure reflects the condition of our heart toward God and eternal values. An apologetic church member once explained to their pastor on this whole subject of spiritual and that. I just don't see how I can give as much as a tenth pastor. Would it be alright if I just gave a fourth? <laughs> Whether or not math is your strong suit, you can be helped by what Jesus has to teach us about giving and getting. First of all, he teaches us about giving that's assumed, motivated, and rewarded. Continuing on in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, we find that giving is assumed. In this section, Jesus begins to address various practices associated by religious leaders with being acts of righteousness, giving, praying, and fasting. First section, verses 1 to 4, talks about our approach in giving. Now, let's admit candidly up front that some of us have a bias concerning the needy, those who are poor. We assume they're lazy, they don't make an effort. Some of them have a medical disadvantage. Some of them are between jobs, growing out of work because the plant closed down, or that industry suffered a shakeup. Changes in government policy can have drastic effects, even on workers who were good at what they do. New Bible commentary advised notes, the Pharisees thought of wealth as a reward for keeping the law. Is that something we too assume? Because if a person has money, they, they must have worked hard to earn it. Sometimes, not always. Or that if a person is in need, they must have somehow made poor choices that landed them there. Sometimes, but not always. So we ought not to prejudge from form an opinion beforehand without knowing all the facts. That is how prejudice develops. Go carefully how Jesus begins verses 2 and 3 in chapter 6. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. But when you give to the needy, do not let, let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Does he say, if you give to the needy? No. When you give to the needy. Jesus assumes we will respond to people with, with genuine need around us. 1 John 3, 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Or in Proverbs 19, 17. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. Hmm. God is paying attention to how we treat those worse off than ourselves. Do you ever think about lending to the Lord? Never assume a person deserves to be in need just because they are. Sometimes the, the details would surprise you. Giving 
is assumed. In Jesus' eyes, it also needs to be properly motivated. What's behind our giving? Is it genuinely prompted by others' need or our own selfish interests involved? What does verse 2 reveal as the motivation of the hypocrites, the play actors, those who are just pretending to be religious? So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. What's their motivation? To be honored by other people. To get noticed. When they're giving a check, be sure to pause long enough to have a photographer from the paper standing by so full credit can be given to the generous donor. Are you giving in order to get something back? As Jesus notes, they have received their reward in full. That's all the reward they're going to get. Their payoff is on this earthly plane. Some time ago, vandals cut down six royal palm trees along Miami's Flagler Street. The palms were about 15 feet tall and provided a nice background for a Fly Delta billboard. Since palms are very expensive, Dade County authorities weren't sure if they could replace them anytime soon. Someone donated six more and even looked after having them planted on us. A slight difference, the, the new palms were 35 feet tall, over double the originals, and completely hid the Fly Delta sign. <laughs> Guess who the generous donor was? Eastern <laughs> Airlines. Not altogether altruistic motives, I'd say. Next, giving is rewarded. See verse 3, where the better motivation becomes clearer. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what's done in secret, will reward you. Are we giving to be seen by men, by other people? No. To be seen and said by our loving Heavenly Father, who doesn't need it to be announced in order to notice. Giving done privately allows the heart not to be clamoring for praise or attention. Instead, we're content with our Father's reward. God declares in Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. God's searching us out, ready to reward us. Thomas Watson once said, there is a blessed kind of giving, which, though it makes the purse lighter, makes the crown heavier. Yet perhaps emphasizing the heavenly reward that's to be ours is still missing Jesus' point. Are we only going to give because of the prospect of getting something in return? Even if it is a heavenly reward. Edward Schweitzer cautions, a man can be just as selfishly and greedily devoted to riches stored up in heaven as to earthly riches. Perhaps our heart still hasn't been totally freed from the disease of what's in it for me. Consider Jesus' words. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So proverbial and familiar now that we probably miss its shock value, its absurdity, how comic it is. Of course your right hand is going to know what your left hand is doing. But Jesus is making a point. Our consciousness is not to be all wrapped up in how we can benefit from such and such a gift. 
give freely, spontaneously, not in a calculating and overly concentrating way, studying to watch whether the gift is suitably appreciated or even well utilized. I have a Scottish background with a leaning towards stinginess, more politely put, thriftiness. I'd like to think I'm parsimonious, but I'm haunted by the warning of Proverbs 23.6. Do not eat the food of a stingy man. Do not crave his delicacies. Praise the kind of man who's always thinking about the cost. Mm, is that me? Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart's not with you. Always thinking about the cost. Always got that mental calculator going, a running tally what the net profit or loss will be. But God's not a stingy giver. Philippians 4.19 My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Because we're blessed children of a gracious Heavenly Father. We can afford to give to those in need. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, 9.8. God's able to make all grace abound. Can you say abound? Abound. Say it with energy. Abound. Yeah, that's got it. God's able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will what? Abound in every good work. You will be made rich in every way so that you will be generous on every Want proof that God is gracious, a generous giver? Look at the cross. Jesus, Son of God, bleeds for us. Ralph Waldo Emerson, in his essay, Gifts, wrote, But our tokens of compliment and love are, for the most part, barbarous. Rings and other jewels are not gifts, but apologies for gifts. The only gift is a portion of thyself. Thou must bleed for me. Therefore the poet brings his poem, the shepherd his lamb, the farmer his corn, the miner a gem, the sailor coral and shells, the painter his picture, the girl a handkerchief of her own sewing. Thou must bleed for me. Christ gives us that kind of gift, one that costs them himself. Later in chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus turns to the subject of getting, where key words are accumulate, radiate, and hate. Accumulate, first of all, storing up, verses 19 and 20. Now, there's actually a pun here, a play on words. More literally, it's do not treasure for yourselves treasures. Don't treasure treasure. I.e., don't hold as precious everything the world considers precious. Christians ought to have a different value system. What's catching our attention, drawing us to collect more, mesmerizing us to the point we, we just got to have some of that? Accumulate. Jesus directs us to store up that which doesn't get lost or taken or corrupted. Matthew 6.19 Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, for thieves do not break in and steal. Talk about how this planet is a very lossy environment. I was taking off on that Ukrainian plane at the Iranian capital 
did not guess that in a few seconds nearly a couple hundred lives would be snuffed out. So tragic. About a third of them carrying Canadian passports. Moth rust destroyed can also have some of the sense of worms eating away at something. As you live decade after decade through your life, what really lasts? Because what you're trying to accumulate is really going to endure. Jesus' parable of the rich fool would leave us asking ourselves, are we storing up things for ourselves or are we rich toward God? Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, was once invited by a wealthy man to come to preach at a certain country church to help the membership raise funds to pay off a debt. Well, the man told Spurgeon he was free to use his country house, his townhouse, or his seaside home. Spurgeon wrote back and said, sell one of the places and pay the debt yourself. <laughs> Accumulate in heaven where it's not glossy like on earth. Now, radiate. Jesus switches gears from talking directly about material things to talking about our desires, what brings light to our eyes, where our attention goes, what we're attracted to. Verses 21 on. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? In one sense, material wealth is not the real issue. It's about idolatry. Where is our true loyalty? Do we own our wealth or does it own us? Does it consume our attention, occupy our waking moments? Material goods are, are kind of like the idiot light that helps us gauge the real state of the engine inside the heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Gollum and Lord of the Rings, are we obsessing over my precious? <laughs> Jesus uses the terminology of light and darkness, with our eyes being the gatekeeper of sorts. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he coached, 5, 14, and 16. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. But is light what's really inside us? Verse 22 here, chapter 6. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, generous, single, unbraided, your whole body will be full of light. Some people's eyes are bright, cheery, beckoning, like windows into their soul. On the other hand, there are those whose eyes are bad, verse 23, drudging, squinting, used to be called the evil eye. Are we envious of what others have? Covenant, thinking the worst about the person we're teaching about. Nobody wants to be around a person who's always sizing you up for what they can take advantage of you for. How can I scam this person? Instead, Christ empowers us to radiate light and goodness, to be a net plus in others' lives. Macedonian believers were poor materially, but yet Paul could write of them, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. 
from Arthur McGuire signed a three-year, $28.5 million contract with the St. Louis Cardinals. He pledged a million dollars per year over the length of the contract to begin a foundation for abused children. As he made this announcement, the star player broke down and cried for more than 30 seconds. In a way of explanation, he later told ESPN Magazine, the money we make in baseball is so ridiculous. How can you not do something like that? That's generous. More like being a light and full of darkness. That's not grudging the evil eye. Getting is about accumulate, radiate, and hate. That is, hate the man and master. Stewardship, when it comes right down to it, is a matter of power and control. What are we going to allow to be Lord over us? If Jesus isn't Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. What other master so benevolent could you choose to run your life? If you refuse to submit to him, you're bound to find yourself enslaved to some other preoccupying and enticing idol. Apostle John closed his first letter. If you listen carefully, you can almost hear the pleading in his voice. John 521. Dear children, keep yourselves from life. In our present case, is it God or the money idol? Matthew 624. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mine. Say that last line with me. You cannot serve both God and mine. Strong language here. You can't be ambivalent. Hate, love. Devoted to, despise. Jesus isn't fine if you get enticed by mammon, that's a Chaldee, Syriac, Phoenix word for the money god, you are certain to develop a hate for and despise the true God. Yes, on Tuesday, someone in the Brampton area apparently won $70 million in Lotto Max, as yet unclaimed, the biggest lottery prize ever awarded in history. Their life will no doubt be forever changed. But will it come to dominate their consciousness? How can it help but take over their future direction? If, if I had won, would I buy lottery tickets? But if I had won, do you think I would be able to keep listing my phone number in the phone book? A study by the National Bureau of Economic Research examined 3,362 Swedish lottery winners who scored at least $100,000, 100000 up to $2 million, and surveyed them about their well-being five to 22 years after they hit the jackpot. One of the findings, winning the lottery didn't seem to change overall happiness. There was some indication overall satisfaction was improved. Researchers said, we also asked about their happiness, and for happiness, we found there's no strong evidence that lottery winners are happier in the long run. But there is strong evidence that they are more satisfied with their lives in the long run. However, co-author Dr. Daniel Cesarini did add, I'm sure the people who win much larger prizes, for example, 70 million, 2 million, wrestle with certain challenges that you wouldn't wrestle with if you win a million dollars. The way you manage your wealth that you have now already is an indicator of the way you would handle more wealth. 
It shows where your heart's at on this whole issue. Very, very, very rich person, John D. Rockefeller Sr. observed, I have tithed every dollar God has entrusted to me. And I want to say if I had not tithed the first dollar I made, I would not have tithed the first million dollars I made. Jesus pointed out, Matthew 6.23, If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Will you be open to the light of Jesus Christ? Or huddle protectively around your own weak spark? Stories of survivors of the Nazi death camps, an attitude of determined giving was one of the things that distinguished the survivors from those who perished. If a prisoner was on the verge of starvation, but he had a crust of bread or a scrap of a potato that he could share with his comrade in suffering, he was psychologically and spiritually capable of surviving. A survivor of the death camp of Treblinka described it this way, In our group, we shared everything. And the moment one of the group ate something without sharing it, we knew it was the beginning of the end for him. Hmm. Think about it. Giving goes living. Jesus, light your lamp to shine his grace and love into others' lives. That's right. Lord, you are the best giver of all. Thank you for your bountiful grace. Thank you for giving us all we have, the vehicles we drove today to get here, the ice scrapers to scrape off the windshield, the gas to put in the tank, the power and heat and everything, Lord, we are so blessed. Lord, help us to be ready to share as you have shared your all for us. And Lord, let, our, let not our left hand know what our right hand is doing. We just want to be seen as people of your grace. 